If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 21 uh, this morning for the sermon. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read from this part of God's Word? Pay careful attention. This is God's Word, faithful and true. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, We hear them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. They all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, Blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, from nothing you created all things by the word of your power. That same word is still powerful today. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit, who inspired Luke to record and write these things down and preserved them throughout history for us, that your Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts and minds, that we would behold wonderful things in your word. Convict our hearts of sin, convince us of the gospel, and equip us to go forth from here in faithful service to our great King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and help us to see him, for we ask it in his name. Amen. 
Uh, some of you may have taken time yesterday evening to watch the Kentucky Derby uh, on television, because you probably weren't there in person. Uh, it, it seems apparent to me that the Kentucky Derby is a lot of anticipation that builds up into a fierce and fast burst from the gates. What do they call it? The slowest two minutes in sports or the fastest two minutes in sports? I can't remember. It's, it's quick. There's all this anticipation, the horses coming out, the, all the commentary about who owns the horses, who the trainer is, who the jockey is, who's supposed to win, who's probably not going to win. All of this anticipation, everybody's dressed up uh, and attending this and all the attire that goes with it. And the horses come to the gate, um, the, the noise is, is sounded, and then they burst forth from the gates. And then two minutes later, as soon as it begins, it's done with only one winner at the end of it. At Pentecost, there has similarly been a building up of anticipation, great anticipation. Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again from the dead. And for 40 days, he was with his disciples, teaching them things concerning the kingdom of God and telling them to wait for the anticipated fulfillment of the Father's promise to send the Holy Spirit upon his church. Forty days they were with Jesus until he ascended into heaven. Ten more days waiting. And now at last, a powerful burst of power from the heavens as the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church. And yet the race, the life, the work of the Christian church uh, has continued much longer than the two minutes of the Kentucky Derby race as we still work and serve Jesus Christ in this life, waiting his return, carrying out the mission he has entrusted to his church. What we see at Pentecost, then, uh, is the beginning, the inauguration of a spiritual harvest and mission from Jesus as he poured out his spirit upon his church, empowering them as his witnesses in all the earth, and by his spirit applying the work that he accomplished in his life, his death, and his resurrection, applying that work to the heart of sinners who repent and believe. Reading uh, this history, I don't know if you have the same sense of excitement that I do when I read the book of Acts. Uh, it's exciting. It's, it's motivating. It's a joyful thing to read. Um, reading this history is exciting. And at the same time, I think it's fair to acknowledge uh, that there are a few things that have perplexed and often divided Christians as much as what we believe about the work of the Holy Spirit, particularly in this case on the day of Pentecost. Uh, discussions about the work of the Holy Spirit are kind of like showing up to a family reunion that happens to be full of sports rivalries. Everybody's happy, everybody's glad to see one another until somebody brings up the big game. And then there's disagreements and a little bit of disruption there. For example, we might ask questions about the book of Acts, about the events of Pentecost like this. Are all of the events of Pentecost and other places in the book of Acts, are all of these events that we see at Pentecost supposed to be the norm for the Christian life today? Should we look for, pray for, and expect a repeat of what we see in this account of Pentecost. Tongues, 
prophecy, uh, wonders, miracles, healings, simply by the spoken word. Is that what we are to expect and long for, repeat of Pentecost? It would seem that often the one spirit who has been given to the church, the one church, is often an occasion for us to argue about what the Holy Spirit is about, what the Holy Spirit is doing. Yet what we see here in the book of Acts is that if our focus, if I can say it this way, if, if our focus, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, if our focus is only on the Holy Spirit, disconnected from the risen and exalted Lord Jesus, then we have sorely missed the point of the Holy Spirit's work. You see, Pentecost is not primarily about the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is not primarily about himself, but is about Jesus. And so you might think about it this way, that Pentecost is the climax of the work of Jesus. Throughout his whole life, he is endowed fully with the Holy Spirit. And at his baptism, the Spirit is poured out upon him to equip him for those years of ministry among his disciples. The Spirit has been, if you will, his constant companion throughout all of life, through his death, through his resurrection, and now at his ascension, he pours out that same Spirit upon his church. Pentecost is not the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the work of Jesus in sending his Holy Spirit upon his church. And in that sense, we might say, Pentecost is as unique and non-repeatable as Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. It is all part of that same complex of redemptive events that Jesus accomplished in his life. And having poured out his spirit, he now sends forth his church to carry out that message to all the earth so that he might apply his work to all peoples. Pentecost uniquely and in a non-repeatable way establishes the church here and then begins that ongoing work of the church throughout history. We see this in three different ways in the passage uh, that we'll hit uh, somewhat briefly, if you will, if you'll allow me. Uh, we see first that Pentecost is fulfillment. It's fulfillment of the Old Testament feast as well as the fulfillment of Jesus' own promise to send his spirit to his church. We see also that Pentecost is a blessing reversing the curse of the Tower of Babel and the beginning of a worldwide mission of the church, beginning with the Jews first and expanding out to uh, all the peoples of the earth. And finally, we see that Pentecost is specifically, uh, from Peter's, the first part of Peter's sermon, specifically the fulfillment of Old Testament promises uh, that the pouring out of the Spirit would be the beginning of the end, would usher in the last days, the beginning of this last period of redemptive history. So let's look first at Pentecost fulfilled. Uh, just a little bit of Old Testament background. In, in, chapter, in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. What is the day of Pentecost? Pentecost was an Old Testament feast. You can read about it in Leviticus 23. We don't have a ton of information about it, but we know a few things. 
Pentecost took place 50 days after the Feast of Passover, and it was a celebration of the bringing in of the harvest. It was an opportunity to give God thanks for the harvest that he had provided. And so uh, it was 50 days after the Feast of Passover. It was one of the few Jewish festivals in which all Jewish men were required to come to Jerusalem to se- in order to celebrate this feast. There were lots of different feasts, but three of them, including Pentecost, uh, required them to come to travel to Jerusalem, which means there's lots of Jews who had been spread out over the whole of the Roman Empire who have now been brought into one place in Jerusalem, which will be important later. And here we see the fulfillment of the Feast of Pentecost, a feast celebrating harvest 50 days after celebrating redemption accomplished in the Passover. And here Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed at his cross and raised again on the third day, accomplishing redemption for his people. And now 50 days later after that, he begins a new worldwide harvest, not of grain, but of people, the Jews and the Gentiles from all nations of the earth. It's the beginning of a new harvest of people who belong to Jesus and in that way fulfills this Old Testament feast. But it's also a fulfillment of Jesus' own promise. Jesus, when he was baptized, uh, John the Baptist said about Jesus that there was one coming after him who was greater than he, that though John the Baptist would baptize with water, Jesus would baptize, you remember, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus has promised his own disciples at the beginning of Acts, telling them to wait in Jerusalem until he gives to them, until he sends to them the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, who would empower them to be his witnesses And in John's gospel, he tells his disciples, I'm leaving, I'm going away, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will send you another helper. He will take what belongs to me and he will give it to you. And Jesus even says that in the coming of his Holy Spirit, he himself is coming to his people. Pentecost is fulfillment. Fulfillment of this Old Testament feast, gathering in the harvest as Jesus begins to gather in a harvest of people who believe in his name. And it's fulfillment even of Jesus' own promise to pour out his Holy Spirit. Pentecost is a unique redemptive event. The work of Jesus as he pours out his spirit from his throne in heaven. It signifies his enthronement as the risen king and lord over his church as he gives gifts to his church. Some of you uh, may know that this year marks, I think, the 70th anniversary of the reign of Queen Elizabeth II in um, Great Britain, United Kingdom, whatever you call it. 70 years she has reigned as queen, and, and at her coronation, I believe in 1952, is that right, 1952, Uh, I've been told that gifts were given uh, to children in the kingdom that consisted at least of uh, candy. That here she she comes into her reign as queen and at her coronation gives gifts throughout the realm, uh, sweet gifts to the children uh, under her rule. Jesus here has been 
coronated, as it were. He has ascended up to the right hand of the Father as the risen King of creation, and now he has given a gift to his people in the Holy Spirit. Jesus here is baptizing his church with his Spirit, inaugurating the beginning of his church in a new way and fulfilling Old Testament promises. You can think about it this way. Uh, and this, this is an illustration from Abraham Kuyper, who was a, a 19th century Dutch uh, theologian and statesman. He said, imagine, if you will, a, a city that ex- it kind of is structured on various tiers. You have an upper level to a city and then a lower level to the city. And the city, for the first time, is now being given running water. And, of course, they start the running water at the top of the city so that it will come down into the lower parts. And there's kind of two parts to the distribution of water to the whole city. The first part is that the water is turned on. Once it is turned on, it then begins to spread throughout the whole city, starting at the top first and then making its way down through the areas in the lower part of the city. You can think about Pentecost in that same kind of dual way. The Holy Spirit is poured out once. The tap is turned on once. And once the Holy Spirit is given, he is given to his whole church But the whole church doesn't immediately receive it as the Holy Spirit begins to spread the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. But the event itself of turning on the tap does not have to be repeated once it has been done. The Holy Spirit has been poured out and now begins to empower his church, the church of Jesus, for witness. And so the disciples are gathered here and are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Tongues of fire come down upon them and they begin to speak in other languages, so that all those Jews who were gathered at the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem hear these Galileans speaking in their own languages, even though Peter and the others did not know how to speak those languages. Now, these Jews, it says in verse 5, living in Jerusalem, uh, there were Jews, rather, living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. As the apostles begin to preach the mighty deeds of God in the languages represented by all those gathered, uh, what you see here is a reverse of the curse of the Tower of Babel. You remember this story, uh, uh, young disciples in your bulletin, you have a a picture of the Tower of Babel, you begin to think about uh, this event from the book of Genesis, men had gathered themselves all together in one place and were seeking to exalt themselves, make a name for themselves by building a tower up to God. And at that time, they all spoke one language so they could communicate clearly with each other. Pass me the hammer, give me the lumber, let's, let's build over here a little bit more. They could speak and others could understand. And in judgment on their sin, God scatters them after he confuses their language. He mixes up their language so that they can't understand one another, and then he scatters them out from this one place. Here you have a reversal of that. You have Jews from lots of nations all over the Roman Empire coming into Jerusalem, and you have clear communication. The gift of tongues being given to these apostles so that when they speak, they're speaking in the languages represented by all the nations who are gathered. 
The gift of tongues is a miraculous event pointing to the fact that this is the work of Christ and his church. It's a miraculous event given uniquely for this period of witness in the early church. And while there's clarity in the fact that they understand what these men are saying about the mighty deeds of God, they're confused, as you might expect. They're gathered in Jerusalem. They see these men who are clearly uh, from the area, clearly Galileans. They would not have spoken all these different dialects naturally. And yet they're confused because they hear them in their own languages, their own dialects, their own languages to which they were born. And they begin to ask, what is going on here? They start to mock, uh, some asking, what does this mean? And others saying, these men are clearly drunk. They're babbling on and on and on, and they must be drunk, which gives Peter the occasion, as we see, to clarify that what's going on here is not the imbibing of too much wine, but the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So you notice Peter stands up, takes this as an occasion to say they're not drunk. It's not even 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, their, their first meal wouldn't have even happened yet. They, they wouldn't have been drinking wine at this time. But rather, what they are seeing is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And then uh, he preaches, this first part of his sermon, uh, preaches from the prophet Joel in verses 17 through 21. Let me just point out a few things of what Peter points out from the prophet Joel. Uh, Notice first in verse 17 that the pouring out of the Spirit is a sign that the last days have come in this event. Verse 17, it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. Now, you need to know that if you go back and read in the book of Joel in chapter 2, Joel does not say that it shall happen in the last days. Joel says that this pouring forth of the Spirit will happen after these things. What Joel anticipated as a future event, Peter is saying, is happening now in their midst. The prophet Joel was written to God's people after a time of great devastation and judgment for sin. A locust plague had been sent into the land and had devastated the harvest, eating up everything so that nothing was remaining which affects not only the harvest now, but the harvest in the next year and possibly even after that. And the Lord called them in Joel to repent, to to rend their hearts and not just their garments, to repent uh, on the inside of their sin and to return to the Lord. And the Lord promised, when you return to me, I will forgive your sins and I will restore your land. All that the locust has devastated, I will restore unto you. And I will pour out a lavish amount of rain on the ground so that there will be a bountiful harvest. And then he connects that pouring out of the rain with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and says, Likewise, I will restore you spiritually. I will pour out my spirit upon you like water on a dry and thirsty land, Isaiah says. And I will restore my people through the pouring out of the spirit. And this will happen after the great redemptive events that God will bring. Well, that event has happened in Jesus Christ. Jesus came as the long-anticipated, the long-awaited Messiah, the one who would restore God's people 
through repentance and through the forgiveness of sins, the one who would fulfill all the promises and all the sacrifices by giving himself on the cross, by being buried in a tomb borrowed from a rich man and rising again on the third day, demonstrating that his sacrifice was sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. Peter is saying that has happened and now he has poured out his spirit upon us as the inauguration, the beginning of the last days. What's the ultimate reason behind what they were seeing? Not drunkenness, but the fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes carried out in Jesus. God is renewing and restoring his people by sending forth his spirit to open blind eyes, to convict of sin, and to bring others to Christ. And notice at the end of this quotation from Joel, Peter points out that the Spirit's presence is both a sign of judgment and a sign of salvation. Notice verse 20 and 21. He says, The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When, when did this happen, this sign of judgment, which is what's indicated by sun, the sun turning dark, the moon being turned into blood? Well, in one sense, it happened at the cross. God's judgment was displayed in Jesus for our sin. At the cross, literally, the sun was darkened as the father turned his back upon his own son because his son became the very thing he could not look upon. He became our sin. He became our shame. He became our guilt. Jesus bore in his own body the sins of all those who would believe in him. And the darkening of the son was a sign of the judgment of the Father, so that at that moment Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's forsaken in that moment because God is judging our sin on Jesus. Judgment was displayed at the cross. And yet in a very real sense, that judgment is also delayed because in Jesus' coming and dying in our place and bearing the judgment for our sin... He has delayed the final judgment that is still yet to come so that we live in between the judgment displayed at the cross and the judgment that is yet to come in the end when, when all human hearts will be laid bare before the great and living God and all will be judged before his perfect throne of righteousness. Those who are in Jesus Christ will be fully acquitted before all the world and declared righteous and forgiven and welcomed those who are not in Jesus Christ will be condemned because they have not embraced the salvation that Jesus has offered to all who would trust in his name. Judgment displayed at the cross, and yet judgment delayed until he comes again, which puts the church in the unique position of proclaiming that though there is judgment coming, there is an escape from judgment now, through the work of Christ on our behalf. That Jesus has died for sinners, that he has risen again from the dead for all and all who will come to him will be given the gift of righteousness covered in his perfection, his beauty, 
so that they can stand before the Father accepted without any fear of judgment. The Spirit is the guarantee that that promise is true so that Peter can say, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We stand in the midst in between those two great events, redemption accomplished in Jesus, judgment displayed in him, and salvation offered to all who will trust in him, and judgment delayed, still yet to come on the great and glorious day of the Lord when he shall return in glory. What do we do in the meantime? Well, the table reminds us that when we come to the table and eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, which is not something we're just supposed to do here in the midst of worship, though we do indeed do that. It's also something we're meant to do as we leave the place of worship, equipped as Jesus' disciples and empowered by his Holy Spirit to bear witness to what Jesus has done. You see, when the book of Acts talks about witnessing, it's not primarily talking about something you do, but something that you are. If you belong to Jesus, you are a witness. You are a witness to the fact that he has done all things necessary for salvation. You are a witness to the fact that he has died, that he has risen again, and that there is salvation in his name, and you are sent forth to then witness to that fact as one of his disciples. So as we live in between these two judgments, judgment on the cross in our place and the judgment to come at the end, uh, we do what Christ has called us to do. We proclaim his death until he comes and, in, and remind the world that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you pray?